If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to uh, the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at that this morning. It's right before the book of Job. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. It's, it's been a while since we've kind of walked through the story. And so let's just walk through it again. And, and we're going to reduce it down to four acts in the story. Four acts. Act number one is what? Creation, right? Creation of the world, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, mankind in perfect relationship with God. The story begins in perfection with God creating everything in the universe and he gets done and he says, this is, this is not just good, this is very good. And by the way, when God says something's good, it's good. And so, act one, creation. Act two. What's act two? The fall. Everything changes. Everything changes. Nobody, in the, none of us has any idea what it's like to live in act one. One day we will. But we all live in act two. The implications of act two, which was the fall, and we see all the implications. You know, the first siblings, one of the siblings killed the other one, and for nearly a thousand years, things continue to degenerate. And finally, we see God's judgment upon sin and the flood. And there's one family left, two of every kind of animal. And we're not even out of the book of Genesis. Act 2, the fall. Act 3, and, and this is really the major bulk of the story. Act 3 is the rescue. It's God's plan to rescue a fallen creation. And specifically, to rescue people like you and I from, the, from sin and its implications in our lives. So, we see that God begins His plan. It begins with a man by the name of... It's been a while. Abraham, first guy. Old guy who has this son named Isaac. Isaac comes along and they have a pair of twins named... Jacob and Esau. Through Jacob, God continues to work. And he has how many sons? Twelve sons. One of the greatest that we find the most written about was Joseph. And through him, all of these tribes, all of these twelve boys and their families end up in Egypt. And eventually they're enslaved. Now remember that word, enslaved. Because this is a metaphor. God's people are enslaved. You are enslaved. I am enslaved. This is a metaphor which God is trying to teach us something in terms of the enslavement that comes with sin. And so the people are enslaved. And remember, God's on a rescue mission. And so God sends a man by the name of Moses to deliver his people. We're now into Exodus. It's taken us one book to get into this part of the third act, the rescue. So we have Moses. Moses leads his people up to the edge of the promised land. And then comes along a man by the name of Joshua. Leads the people in. They're still wrestling. They're still struggling all through this time with this enslavement to sin. They get into the promised land and they finally conquer their enemies. But they keep falling away from God and coming back. And God raises up judges. In the book of Judges we read this over and over again, and people are continuing to struggle with enslavement. Out of Judges, 
we find that the people finally get their what? Their king. Saul, David, Solomon. And they all had their problems because they too are enslaved. We see then that out of Israel's disobedience to God and their enslavement, eventually they end up captured by Assyria and Babylon and, and taken away into captivity. It is during this time that Persia enters the scene and we see that Persia takes Assyria, Babylon, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and takes it all. You'll see a map up on the wall. And this is a, uh, this is a picture of the Persian Empire. On the right-hand side is India. On the left-hand side is Greece. So everything in between there. And so the whole Middle East, Afghanistan, Libya, Sudan, Egypt, uh, all of these countries, Macedonia, uh, there's so many countries in there that are under this Persian Empire. And it is during this empire and during the exile of God's people that as we saw last week, God works in the heart of a king by the name of Cyrus who calls his people back to rebuild the temple. Now, we're in the middle of the rescue act. We're not going to get into it, but the last act in the story, by the way, is the restoration. And so, we're moving there, but this morning we're in the middle of the Persian Empire. We're in Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Right in between those two chapters, there's this very intriguing story of a woman by the name of Esther, and a very critical point, not the first one, but a very critical point in God's people. Esther, verses 1, 1 through 12. Let me read the story, and uh, we're not going to be able to read all of this, but here it is, Esther 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. He's king now of Persia. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes resigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia, Media, the princesses, the nobles of provinces were present, present, and listen to this, for a full 180 days, that's, half, that's six months. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. He's painting a picture here of what this looks like. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble mother of pearl, and other costly stones. You get a picture? Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed in the wine, all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, 
he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, this is the name of them there, I'm not going to mispronounce them, <laughs> to bring him before him Queen Vashti wearing her, her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. So there's the, there's the initial story. We see here that this begins the book of Esther. <clears throat> now just a word about this book. This book was read every year among Jewish circles. The book of Esther was read every year in the Feast of Purim, usually in late February. And even today, the Jews on the Feast of Purim will open up this book and they will read the entire book, the entire story of Esther. We see here that Pur Purim means lots and it stands for uh, the day when, as we'll see, Haman cast lots for the day in which they would massacre the Jews. And so that's the meaning of the word Purim. It, it's referring to the lots that were cast. And so what happens is every year there's a three-day fast to represent the fast that Esther called for. And then there's the Feast of Purim and the Jews get up and they read this and everybody's involved. And what they do is whenever they read, when they're reading the book, whenever they get to the name of Mordecai, everybody cheers. So let's try it. You get to the name of Mordecai. Mordecai! Okay, this would go on through the whole reading of the book. Okay? Whenever they got to, and whenever they got to Haman's name, Everyone would boo. So try it. Haman. They also had rocks. And on the names of the rocks, they had written Haman's name on two rocks. And they would hit that together. And the goal was to wipe out the name of Haman by the time he got to the end of the reading of Esther. They also wrote Haman on the bottom of their feet, on the soles of their shoes. And they would also stamp their feet every time the name of Haman was read. This, this has gone on and even goes on today in traditional Jewish circles. So, they would go through and uh, they, would, they would read the story. Uh, let's just try a, a short portion of it. All right, you ready? Okay. Then, <clears throat> I'll read 2-7 and 3-2. So this is what would happen in, in Jewish circles. Then Mordecai <laughs> had a cousin named Hadash whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Verse 2, and all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded him concerning him, but Mordecai would kneel down and pay honor to him. Okay, now this would go on. This 50, Mordecai, Mordecai's name is mentioned like 54 times. So we're not going to do that this morning, okay? So we're done now, okay? Or I think it will be a little disruptive, but they read through the whole book, and uh, you know, sometimes it would be fun to do that. That is the Feast of Purim. So let's just talk through the story. We don't have time to read the whole story. So here's what happens. Xerxes is showing himself off. He has this big banquet. At the end of the banquet, he says, you can drink as much as you want for seven days, and everybody gets drunk. In the midst of this, his cronies are with him, and he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I got a really good-looking queen, I, I'm, I'm going to bring her in here and show her off these guys and, and show these guys what I, 
what I have here in, in, this, in Queen Vashti. And so Vashti gets word, and, uh, and she knows what's going on. And she's going, I am not going to walk in there before all my hubby's drunk cronies like a piece of meat and be prated. I, 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 I am not going to do that. And so she sends word, and she says, I'm not coming. And Xerxes is obviously embarrassed because all these guys are there. And then the guys come in, they say, you can't let her get away with this. If you let her get away with this, word will get around the kingdom. You know what? Every wife in the kingdom will think they can say no to their husband. That's exactly what it says, the conversation they had. And so Xerxes is drunk, and he says, okay. And they, and they say, why don't you just get rid of her? Just make an edict that she's banished from your sight forever. And that's what he does. By the way, edicts in these days can never be overturned. Once the king makes an edict, even the king cannot overturn his edict. So he wakes up the next morning. He's over his stupor. He realizes what he's done. He realizes the stupid thing he's done, but it's too late. His queen is gone forever. She will never be in his sight again. And so they come and they say, you know, you need to find another queen. And so we have the story how the king sends out. Um, you know, this is hard for us to fathom. You go out into the empire and you find the most beautiful virgin women. You bring them in. By the way, this is the, this is the first early edition of The Bachelor. <laughs> it's, really, it's really very similar. And so these women come, they spend a year, and then they spend the night with the king. He takes their virginity, and then for 99% of them, uh, throws them off into one of his concubines, which he may get back to it someday if he feels like he is so inclined. That was the fate of these young women. So just think about that. Think about what that was like for Esther. Esther is chosen. She comes, and she is being taken care of by Mordecai, who's her cousin. She's an orphan. And I'm sure Mordecai was, was deeply disturbed here. And she's taken, and she gets chosen amongst all of them. And so she is, she becomes his wife in chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her, and she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So it's... it's just an amazing thing. Now we, we move ahead and we enter the character Haman. And this is a guy that leapfrogs up to the second in command. And this guy's even more full of it and full of himself than Xerxes. And so he's out and he, he, want, he would like that wherever, whenever he comes into the royal gate that everybody bows down. Everybody bows down. And so he would do that. And Mordecai, who was a, 
a faithful Jew is going, no, I'm, I'm not bowing to this guy. I'm not bowing to anybody but to my God. <clears throat> and so this infuriates Haman. I mean, this is such, this is such to have this man standing there is such an insult to his pride that he becomes obsessed with this man, this one guy who won't bow to him by the name of Mordecai. And so what he does is he goes into the king in chapter 3, and he comes with this very vague request. And uh, we see here chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month of the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. And then Haman said to Xerxes, uh, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of other people and who did not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them, so if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadiatha and Agathite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So he comes in, says, you know, there's these certain people out there, doesn't even really say who they are, and it would be best just to eliminate them, and the king goes, okay, go ahead. So the lot has been cast, the day of the massacre is set, and what we discover is that this is the massacre of the entire Jewish race, is what's at stake, and is scheduled, is on the calendar. Mordecai hears about it, and Mordecai is mortified. This could be it. I mean, this could be the end of the entire Jewish race. And so he sends word to Esther in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 10. He sends word, and let me just read a little bit of that. Chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, and uh, or let me just back up uh, a minute. He, he sends word that, that she needs to make this move, and, and she needs to go in, and she needs to break the news of who she is, and that ask the king to have mercy uh, upon the Jewish people. And so this is her response, verse 10 of chapter 4. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and peoples of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. The only exception is that for the king to extend the gold scepter to, to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day, night or day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. 
And when this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The stage is set. I mean, just, just imagine the moment. I'm sure Esther didn't sleep a wink that night. She gets up, she walks into the king's uh, present, and she's watching the scepter. Because if that scepter isn't raised, it's over. She is whisked away, and her life is over. She walks in, and the king lifts his scepter. She comes forward. He says, what, what is it that you want? And so she, she tells him that she would like to have a banquet. She wants to have Haman there, and at the banquet she'll give her request. And so it pleased the king. He liked food. She prepares his banquet, and, and they, they come, and, and the... Uh, the first night, nothing happens. The first day, uh, the first evening of this banquet was a two-night deal, and nothing happens. Uh, some commentators feel that she kind of chickened out the first night, took her a second night. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was just God's providence because that after the first night, we read, and we don't have time to go in depth to the story, but I, I, I love this part of the story where the king gets up because he can't sleep at night and he's reading through his old journals and he finds out that Mordecai, a number of years ago, there was this guy by the name of Mordecai who had told of a plot to take the king's life and Mordecai had saved his life. And so he wakes up in the morning and he says to his servant, he said, you know, and, and God is just God's, this is God's little scene here in the story. And so he he says to his servant, go find whoever you can find that's in the, in the palace area and bring him to me. So he goes there and guess who it is? It's Haman. He, said, he brings Haman in and he says, Haman, what, what would you do for someone that the king wanted to honor? And Haman is so full of himself that he thinks the king's got to be talking about him. So he says, you know, I think you, I think you uh, give him a royal robe and put a crown on his head and take one of the king's horses and parade him through a town and say, this is how we honor someone who has honored the king. King says, that is a great idea, Haman. I want you to go get a horse, go get a, a robe, go get a crown. I want you to put it on Mordecai. <laughs> put him on the horse and I want you to pronounce him through the town. This is what the king does for someone who honors. C can you imagine... This guy's already seething, and now this is his job. <clears throat> the night before his own execution, which he's totally unaware of. He goes through this, they come to the banquet, and we see uh, in 11 and 12, chapter 5, we see that uh, Haman boasted them all about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Little did he know what Esther had in mind for Haman at that banquet. He comes, and uh, we see here that the banquet, finally the moment arrives, chapter 6, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and they were drinking wine on the second day, and the king said, Queen Esther, what is your petition? 
it will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. And if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Who is the man who's dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified because the king... Because before the king and queen. And the king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already de- decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. We see it goes on, and Haman is hanged that very day on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. The annihilation of the Jewish race is averted. And... Uh, it's an amazing, amazing story. You know that Adolf Hitler banned the reading of the book of Esther. He also banned the celebration of Purim. A few years later, Stalin uh, had a, a plan engaged to deport all of the, just about all of the Jews into Siberia uh, most people who were, went to Siberia never came back alive. The plan, Stalin had the plan in place, and uh, on March 1st, 1953, two, two months before I was born, on March 1st, Stalin had a severe stroke and died a few, years la- uh, a few days later. You know what day March 1st is? It's the eve of the Feast of Purim. And so the plan was never carried out. But what do we learn from the story of Esther? There are so many applications. And uh, let me just take these last few minutes to share a couple of things with you. Uh, first, in terms of the upper story, you know, it's pretty clear. God's intervening again on behalf of his people. And let me just say this about, about this part of the story. You know, Esther is an amazing woman, and, and what she did was amazing. And uh, the Jewish people are so thankful for the courage that she had to do this. And she will be known throughout all of history. Her name has been elevated because of her obedience to God. But had she not been faithful, and had she not followed through, the, Israel, the Israeli race and God's people would still have been rescued. And that was the word of Mordecai to Esther, if you read the text. He says, you know what? If you don't come through, God will bring deliverance from somewhere else. Your safety, your rescue is not dependent on any person, place, or thing. It is dependent on God himself, and he will see to it that his people are rescued. Esther had an opportunity to be a part of this great thing that God was doing, and she stepped into that opportunity. But one way or another, God's covenant with his people will always be maintained. In terms of our lives, here's just a a few things you can think about. Number one, your life is, and I I know I've said this before, but I, I think I need to keep repeating it, your life is not about your story. 
We, we all have stories for our lives, and the older we get, the more we realize the difference between our story and God's story. Not that our lives are bad when we look back. We see the faithfulness of God, but they're different. Because things along the way were different than we thought they were going to be. You know, I think of uh, Joni Tata Erickson. You know her story? She's 17 years old. Any 17-year-olds here? Okay, she's a 17-year-old girl. What are you thinking about when you're 17 years old? You've just graduated from high school. I mean, you're thinking about college. You're thinking about getting away from home. You're thinking about the friends you're going to meet. Maybe getting, maybe meeting the guy of your dreams someday. Having a family. You've got this story that you're writing out in your mind. And she takes a dive off a Chesapeake Bay dock, and she comes up paralyzed for the rest of her life. That's a change in the story. You ever had a change in your story? Our stories change. And we, we see here, you know, God said to this young woman, uh, nope, you're not going to play the role that you tried out for. I've got a different role for you. You're going to be paralyzed in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. That's the story I want you to play. How would you do with that? She talks about being in that reverse bed in the hospital, upside down, paralyzed, trying to figure out how she could kill herself and being so angry because she, didn't, she was so helpless she couldn't even kill herself. That, that's, that's the battle sometimes when God calls a change in the story. But that's what humility is really all about. Humility is really about allowing God to use your life to write his story. Our lives are not about our story. Imagine Esther. First of all, she's a young kid and her parents are gone. We don't know what happened. That wasn't part of her story. She's an orphan. Then she comes along and, and she's got dreams like any young girl and she finds out she's going uh, to a year of beauty school and then she's going to be called into the room of a man she doesn't know. Uh, she knew what the kings of, and Persians were like. I mean, can you imagine what that experience was like? I don't think this was any... Uh, fun trip to, the, to beauty school. I, th I think this was terrifying for this young gal. Probably about 16, 17 years old at this time. Imagine just the story, how it, how it changed for her. And yet we see that she comes to the point in her story where she has to surrender everything and she says, Okay, God, if, if I perish, I perish. If that's the line in the story, then I'm willing to play that role. You know, this is our lives this morning. This is what we, we, we wrestle, we struggle with that place where we say, God, not your will, uh, not my will, but, but your will be done in my life. I, I remember when, I was, when we were in Roseau, and I, I've shared this before, but I, I got really sick on on. Uh, at a fuel oil leak in the furnace and I got chemically sensitized, desensitized and I started reacting to everything and I can only work about four hours a day and I'm thinking I'm not going to be able to continue pastoring. And by the way, I didn't know what was going on at the time and I had no idea what's going on and I, I'm talking to people about this and they're kind of looking at you like, have you been working too hard? Or maybe you need to go to a counselor. Uh, maybe it's just in your head and I'm going, yeah, it's in my head all right. I feel like my head's going to explode. 
And I didn't understand what was going on, and that was a terrifying time for me. And I remember just wrestling and struggling with what's going on and where's God and all this stuff. And in the middle of that, God spoke something to me. And if you've ever been through one of those things, sometimes God will speak something to you. And it's usually not a lot. It's usually just something very short. And, but he's giving you that one thing to hang on to, the one thing to remember. And I remember in that experience what God spoke to me. And this is, what, this is, the, this is the phrase that came into my mind and, and wouldn't leave and I finally concluded that this was God speaking to me, and it was this. God always takes care of his children. God is not an abusive father. He's not an absent father. He's not six months behind on his child support. God will always take care of his children. If you are a child of God, God will take care of you. And so I was challenged with that thought. You're going to believe that God's taking care of you or not? I'm going, it doesn't feel like he's taking care of me. But if God's my father, then, then I guess he is taking care of me. It took two, three years. But you know what? I came out of it. When I got done, I was better than I'd ever been before because I'd always struggled with it and didn't know the sensitivities I'd had. And our family ended up, instead of on the busy street on Highway 11 in Rosa, we ended up a mile out of town on a two-acre lot next to the river with a wheat field in front of us and a pasture on, on, the, on the right side of us. And, and God worked many miracles to that just to get us there. And I looked back about three years later and I went, wow, God does take care of his children. It's true. And so, as, as our stories take different turns, we need to remember that the story God is writing is good. It may be hard. It may be sacrificial, but it's good. Life's not about our story. There's the second thing. There's a purpose for the role you're playing. Uh, here's a classic line from the book of Esther. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. You know, life is a lot about fixing, changing oil and changing diapers and, and taking out the garbage and all the mundane things of life, but there are moments in time. There are such a times as this, when there's a word that you speak or a place and you speak into someone's life and God profoundly uses that to change the course of history in someone's life. And you know what? Most of the time, you will probably never be aware of it. The seven of you who shared the gospel this week, I, I would dare say that for, at least in, in some of those experiences, something will happen in the life of somebody and you will probably never find out. I shared the story of Frank Jenner, who is the guy from Sydney, Australia, George Street, who got saved during World War II and, and committed to God that for 10 people every day, he would ask this question, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? in heaven or hell. Ten people a day, just ask them the question, give them a simple track. And he did that faithfully for 40 years. And if you go online and read his story, you'll hear about a Baptist evangelist minister who was going around the world, and he began to run into testimonies of people who had been saved through this man's ministry. They said, yeah, I ran into this white-haired guy on George Street in Sydney, Australia. He asked me this, and I started. It got me thinking. That's what they all said. It got me thinking, and, and six months, a year later, I, I, I came to Christ. And uh, this Baptist minister said, I got to go visit. I got to meet this guy. So he went back 
to George Street, Sydney, Australia, found the guy. He's now old. He can't even hardly walk. And he comes to the door and he's shaking and he, he goes in and he begins to share stories of these testimonies that he'd heard of people that had been saved through this man's ministry. Frank Jenner is just weeping. This old man is, is, is just weeping. And when he gets done, Frank Jenner looks at him and he said, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years. And he said, I have never known of one person I've never, heard, I've never heard of one person who's come to faith through, through all the sharing that's gone on. And so there are those places and points in time where God will use all of us, not just Esther. He'll use you if we're listening and we're willing to take the courage and God will transform lives and destinies of people through those sorts of things. Here's the last one, and, and you can just think about this, but... Um, the last one is this. The last lesson we see from this book of Esther, and we're seeing it over and over and over again, and that's this. God never abandons his people. He never abandons his people. He won't never... If you're a child of God today, if, if you have trusted in Christ and received Christ into your life, and you have become a child of God through the work of the Spirit, God will never abandon you. And God's trying to teach us that lesson through Israel, who is just so disobedient and so wayward and so inconsistent. And God is saying, my love is unconditional. It continues on. You, you can't defy it. We, as the scripture says, and I'm quoting now, we are faithless, but he remains faithful. And again, today, we see that God comes through and, and rescues the Jewish race as people and uh, just does it in, a, in an amazing, amazing way. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'd like to conclude with, with prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, this, this story, and there are so many lessons that we can learn from the story of Esther. Father, we see that you are working and shaping and moving in the lives of people, not just Esther, but our life, and, and you're redirecting uh, our lives at times to, to accomplish your purposes in the story. And Father, we just affirm that those purposes, even though they, we don't always understand them, that, that they are good, and one day we'll look back and we'll just proclaim your goodness through, through every part of the story that you have written in our lives. Father, we pray for humility that we might be willing to surrender our lives to your story, that we might be willing to give up the story that we want for the story that you desire. And uh, Lord, we, we would pray for that humility in our lives. Father, I also pray uh, for anyone here uh, who has yet to enter into that place of being your people. And as your people who are, are not able yet to, to proclaim that that you always take care of us, that you will never abandon us, that you always rescue your people. And Father, through simple faith in the work of Christ, Father, we, we know that that work is done in the lives of whosoever will. Father, thank you for uh, your word to us today. Thank you for the example of Esther. And Lord, perhaps this week, there will be those such a times as this where you call us to listen and obey and step out in courage and uh, you do things that are beyond what 
we can see and even imagine. So be our prayer today. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name here in, in Jesus' name. Amen.